Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. We're going to look at a, a verse from our Parsha, the opening verse, and then a verse from Dvarim. And my question for you, kind of like a Rorschach test, is if you had to connect these two verses, how would you? Okay? So the opening line of our Parsha, from which we get the name of the Parsha, God's telling Moses, Vi'ata titzaveh et b'nei Yisrael, you, Moses, titzaveh, from the root tzava, which from which we get the word mitzvah, you're going to command et b'nei Yisrael, the children of Israel, v'yikhu elecha, so two verses, um, two, two Parshas in a row begin with a commandment to the Israelites that they're doing some taking, right? They took stuff and then the opening lines of Parshat Shuma, a gift to God. Uh, oh, there's a sheet right in front of you. Okay. You're um, they should take to you, you meaning Moses, Shemen Zayat, the, the oil of olives, Zach, pure, Katit, beaten down, Lama or for illumination, Lahalot, Ner Tamid, in order to raise up the Ner Tamid. Okay, so this is the verse from which we get. Uh, all right, the Ner Tamid is t- temporarily missing. <laughs> Forgot that because we're mid construction. But this is the verse uh, which in- initially commanded the Israelites to put a eternal light um, at the altar. And that's why synagogues to this day have a Ner Tamid. Okay, that's beginning of Parshat Tetzaveh. Hold that thought, that image. And go to the second verse. This is Dvarim chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, and in context, this is Moses kind of recalling to the Israelites a series of laws that God gave them. And one of them is, Velo titchaten bam. You shall not marry yourselves with them. Bitcha lo titain livno. Your daughter you shall not give to, their, to his, meaning that nation's son. Uvito and his daughter Lotikach Livnach Livnecha, and his daughter you shall not take for your son. So this is a standard uh, core source for why Jews should participate in endogamy, marrying within the faith. Uh, two verses, three books of the Torah apart. One about the eternal light in the tabernacle. One about Keeping relationships, keeping marriages inside the Jewish family. If you had to connect them, how would you connect them? Alan, we have some microphones on the table. There should be. So just one? There should have been more. Well, I only need one. So, Joe, you need to take that microphone off the stand so it's easier to pass. Okay. Okay. The Pasuk in Exodus talks about pure. Oil, clear oil, beaten olives for lighting, and it's, it talks about the purity of what's going to be there. It's not just taking regular oil. You have to refine it and make it pure. And I think we're talking about not intermarriage. It's to keep the people of Israel pure in that same way. And it also makes it as ongoing to be eternal. You talk about a ner tamid for light, for the Jewish people to be eternal you have to have Jews marrying Jews. Okay. It's not just regular oil. It's oil that's been kept preserved and kept apart. And 
so too the Jewish people should retain a certain purity. We don't want to get into the conversation of racial purity, obviously, but a purity in terms of what we're transmitting to the next generation. And I like your connection that both of these is the best way for it to be a tummy, for it to be perpetu perpetuatable, for it to be able to be going for perpetuity. Title? So I, I have two. And the first is how the custom of Upshiran came about, which is if you're talking about trees that you can't use the fruit for three years, one of the most precious trees is clearly an olive tree because it's, it's seven species. Light is something that distinguishes humans from other creatures, etc. And the reason for Upshiran is a child at three is likened to not using, not trimming or using a tree at three. Okay, so which, which I liked better than Alan's pure focus on purity. But how is that connected? You know, this is something I want to the second verse. Because it's fruitfulness. It's the next generation. It's, Got it. it's <clears throat> fertility. Got it. So, uh, even though we and Rabbi, one more thing. You're somehow... You, your voice is very distinct until something happened with the microphone. How about this? Is that better? Much better. So, um, even though we don't think of an olive as a fruit in terms of like, you know, in American culture, a fruit is a sweet thing. Technically, halakhically, an olive is a fruit. Fruit is fruitfulness and fertility. And the real reason why we don't want intermarriage is because we want the next generation to be fruitful in a Jewish way. Bobby? Yeah, the way I, oh, the um, the word that stuck out at me, at least in the English, was the beating of the olives, because in order to have this continuity, you have the ravid, the chain, the door door generation to generation, it takes a lot of work, you know, to grind the olives, to to do that, you know, if, if you want to have the pure oil and you want to have the, the continuity and the, the ner tamid, you know, to keep going, it takes a lot of work, whether you're a parent or you're a rabbi or you're a teacher, you have to work hard in order to instill all the right things or to keep up with the daily grind of making sure that what needs to be done needs is done so that you have what you need as the end product. Lovely. There's a certain grinding pressure to produce something pure and valuable and worthy that's going to last. Good. Three for three, call it kabod, right? By the way, the exercise we just did, that really is the essence of Midrash. We read Midrash, but it's also possible to produce Midrash. What Midrash? Stringing together associations between verses, and, and there, there were different um, sub-genres of Midrash. One sub-genre of Midrash called a petichta, which means kind of an opening, where the person writing the Midrash would start with another verse, not connected to the verse they were on, and you, if you imagine sitting in the yeshiva, you know, 2,000 years ago, you're thinking, what, how is he, it was a he back then, going to bring it back to our verse? And eventually, there's a circuitous, circuitous route, and all of a sudden, the verse that you were on becomes illuminated. So the reason why I had you connect these two verses, you could have, I could have done this exercise any two verses, is because one of the classic midrashim, Anshmod Rabbah, um, on this verse in Exodus about the lighting of the lamp, actually brings us eventually to the second verse. And I want, um, now that you've come up with some of the ideas on your own, which are going to be actually evocative of what the Midrash says, let's actually read the Midrash. So this is Shmot Rabbah, chapter 36, uh, number one. On the phrase, Viata Titzavet. And I want you to be aware as you're reading this Midrash, a couple of things that 
may seem obvious, but they're worth highlighting. First of all, how, uh, how immersed in the biblical text the rabbis of the Midrash were, how they knew and loved every single syllable, and they had almost instant recall, and their love affair with the flora and fauna of the land of Israel. We are very disconnected from fruits and vegetables and sand. We go to Ralph's and we pick our link and we get our clementines, right? We don't really know what it's like to produce it. By the way, that's one of the things that just that is was wonderful about um, the Zionist revolution is that it brought the Jews back not only in contact with the land of Israel, but the flora and the fauna of the land of Israel, having to be the farmers that produce all of those seven species, right? The, this material is written, whether it was written in the land of Israel or written in Babylonia with recent memory of, of toiling in the land of Israel, they're very intimately connected with all the species and aspects of the different fruits that for them said something about the experience of the Jewish people. Okay. Um, so our verse. Something like, this is reminding me, or this is connected to that which is written in the book of Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, God says the following verse about the Jewish people. Zayit ra'anan yafeth. A, um, a beautiful and flourishing olive tree. To'ar kara adonai shmecha. God has called your name, Israel, like that. So, Jeremiah says, of the ways I can describe you, my people, I'm connecting you to a verdant olive tree. If you've ever been to you know, the Galilee, think of those beautiful, strong olive trees that are just like, you know, dropping beautiful fruits all the time. The Midrash says, V'chilo nikru'u Yisrael ela zayat bilvad. Wait a second, whoever you're writing this Midrash. You're reminded of a verse in Jeremiah just because our verse talked about olives, right? Because that's the verse that we're commenting on. Just because Jeremiah said that uh, the Jewish people can be, can be connected to an olive tree, is that the only thing that the Jewish people were likened to? I, meaning the author of this Midrash, I have perfect recall of all the little verses, and I can give you many verses that describe Israel related to other fruits. Is it not the case that there are many kinds of beautiful and pleasant and praiseworthy trees that the Israelites were compared to? For instance, and now we're going to go into a five or six example, for instance. The Gefen Uteina. I have a verse that connects the Jewish people to Gefen. What's Gefen? The vines. Uteina. Figs. Nemar. We have a verse, chapter 80 of uh, Tehillim. Gefen Nimitzrayim Tasia. That um, in the book of Tehillim, the author says, You um, transported a, uh, a grapevine from Egypt. Who is the grapevine in the sentence? Us. Like, like, you think Joseph, it could be Joseph in particular. But the Jewish people are like a beautiful grapevine in Egypt. You brought them out. And Te'ena, Shenanamar, says in the book of Hosea, that um, we are compared to hi Danny we are compared to um, the first fruit that ripens on a fig tree so all of a sudden we've got yeah olive we'll get to olive but don't forget about grape don't forget about um, fig and speaking of more of the seven species katamar uh, Michelle do you have a sheet? I'm sharing okay I have an extra <laughs> 
in what way have we been compared to a tamar, a date tree? Shenemar uh, in the book of Song of Songs. Zot komatech damta tamar. This, the way you hold yourself, komatech, you're standing up. Damta is similar to like the verb gomet tamar. Okay, so so far there are three different fruits that we've been compared to. How about erez? How about a cedar tree? Shenemar keerez people of Israel in, in entirety, it's a tzaddik, it's the righteous amongst us, are compared to a, a tall cedar tree in Lebanon. How about a nut tree? Ke'egoz, Shinamar, back to Song of Songs. El ginat egoz yaradi. I descended into a garden of nut trees. Um, and again, this, the Midrash assumes that the Song of Songs is a love poem between God and the Jewish people. So when God says he descended into a garden of nut trees to meet his beloved, who is the beloved? Us. Okay? So, so far, the Midrash says, you brought Jeremiah, you're reminded of Jeremiah who compares us to the olive tree because our verse that we're originally talking about from our Parsha is connected to the olive tree. But there are many, many fruits that we're connected to. We've also been uh, connected to all types of things that grow in a field. Shlachim are, are various growths in a field. Shenamar, back to Song of Songs. Shlachayich, Hardeis, Bimonin, etc. Your irrigated fields, and again, in the comparison, the you is the Jewish people. You know, your, your beautiful um, expanse has um, Bimonim, uh, pomegranates, and the... Um, the Midrash doesn't quote the whole verse. If you go to the end of the verse, there are like seven or eight different random fruits that are represented there. Right? The Jewish people being thought of as a flowering, flourishing field. Why does Jeremiah come? If Jeremiah, as it were, knew all these other texts, right? Some of the texts came after Jeremiah, but in the Jurassic imagination, there's no uh, chronology in the Bible. Why would he say, Zayat Ranan Pritoa? Why would he say that mostly God has compared us to a flourishing, beautiful olive tree? Okay. So, all this has been a question, right? The question was in our verse, this notion of, uh, of the eternal light being connected or being illuminated by beaten olive oil. The author says, hey, that reminds me of Jeremiah, who compared the Jewish people to olive tree. And then the author himself saying, wait a second, there are many other things that we're compared to, so why would Jeremiah focus on that? Ella, ma hazayat hazet. Just like this olive. Ad jehu It starts out happily on its tree. Migargarinoto. We pick it. Vyacharkach moridimoto. Min hazayat. And then we bring it down from the tree. And we beaten it, we flatten it. Once we've kind of flattened it, we bring it up into, into the olive And we put it into the mill. And then we grind it. And then we serve with all sorts of ropes. If you ever think about ancient olive press works, it's they're a series of heavy, heavy, very heavy stones. And also the olives placed between mats or reeds that when you press down upon it, the, the matter of the olive stays, but the oil drips out. You bring these heavy stones, and then they give their oil. That's how you make oil from olives. It's very similar, the Jewish experience. 
Ba'in of Dei Kochavim, our enemies come, Bechovtim Otem, and smack them down, beat them like olives that cannot protect themselves. Mimakom Lamakom, moving us from place to place. Bechovshim Otem, and press us, Bechovtim Otem, and force us, Bechovarin, and put us in shame. Umakifin Otem, Tartutim, the great Aramaic Greek word and surround us with fences, meaning enclose us so we can't escape, as if we are the olive. So what's the olive's experience in the process of making oil? Pressed, pushed down, constrained, forced, squeezed. What happens ideally to the Jewish people when we are treated so poorly? We ask ourselves, what have we done on some level to deserve this, right? This is not, there's a little bit in rabbinic theology of blaming the victim, as long as the victim that you're blaming is yourself, right? The Jewish people are supposed to ask themselves in moments of travail, what, what is God angry with us for? Because if God were not angry with us, then we wouldn't be experiencing this. So that should bring us to a, um, a uh, process of tshuva. And tshuva here, the tshuva coming from us, is like oil coming from the olive. The only way it comes is through travail, through pressure, through inconvenience, to say the very least. Zakadosh Baruch Hu Onelahem. And the Holy One answers them when they do tshuva, minayim. How do we know that it's only in response to our doing tshuva, our, our recognizing that we're in such pain that God will answer? Shinamar, as it says in the second chapter of Shemot, and the Israelites um, groaned out. Turn the page to the bottom of page two, you get the whole verse. This is the verse in Parshat Shemot where God begins to respond to the Israelites. Um, in their uh, oppression in Egypt. This is source, I didn't, I didn't say source number, but the bottom of page three. It was on those days, the king of Egypt died, the king that was oppressing them. The Israelites cried out from their heavy labor. They Their cry ascended up to heaven from the very uh, from the very place that they were crying, it went up to God. So, uh, back to our verse, bottom page two, that verse shows that it's once we cry and realize how much we're suffering, and the cry reaches up to God, I think what's implicit in the verse is that in that crying, we actually are willing to do some change and involve ourselves in Shubah. Then God will respond. And then they quote another verse from the fourth chapter of Barim. You can look at that. Um, on the top of page four. But sarlaka, when you're in service, that word sar, when you're in stress, and all these awful things find you, at the end of days, you're going to do tshuva towards your God, and listen to God's voice. And what will happen then? The softest aspect of God will be manifest. Lo yarpacha will not let you fail. Lo yashchitecha will not destroy you. Lo yishka atrit avatecha will not forget covenant with your ancestors. Asher nishvalehem that is really Okay. So so far the midrash now go back to go to the top of page three has done this circuitous route to say yeah if you survey biblical literature there are many proofs that we're compared to but primarily we're compared to the olive. And why are we are we compared to the olive? Because it's only when we're under enormous pressure 
when those millstones are on us and we're so squeezed that we can't breathe, the purest liquid emerges from us. If you're an olive, the liquid is oil. If you're a Jew, the liquid is shuba. The liquid is awareness of your part in bringing yourself back to a place of, of, of being high again. Okay. So, so far, what we read has nothing to do with the first question I asked you. Okay? But because I was going to bring you the next source, I wanted to bring you this source, the ways in which the rabbis are imagining that they see a fruit. When I see a fruit, I want to eat it. The rabbis <laughs> of the ancient world saw fruits of the, of the land of Israel. They tried to connect that to the Jewish experience. Okay, now the top of page three. The Baracher. Here's another way of responding to this verse about olives. Ma What did Jeremiah see? Such that it made sense to compare our ancestors to the olive tree. Ella. All liquids mix. You pour orange juice into Coca-Cola and you mix it, it becomes some disgusting concoction, but you can no longer tell where the orange juice ends and the Coca-Cola begins. And pretty much any other liquid. And by the way, we're scientific people living in a scientific generation, so we know something about the viscosity of oil, and so it makes sense to us scientifically. But go back thousands of years, and, all, and, and you're just getting used to the world, and you have liquids, and most liquids form together, and all of a sudden there's one liquid that's pretty prevalent called olive oil, and you pour it other things, and it's still the olive oil, right? And before you had scientific equations to explain that, your reaction to it was, whoa, there's some wonder there. Like, why does that happen? And what is it about the olive that produces that? And how can it be connected to Jewish people? The olive oil does not mix together Rather, it stands. And if you ask yourself, by the way, yes, that's true of olive oil, but it's true of all other oils. Most of the oil that they knew was olive oil. That was their primary source of oil. So yes, you know, there are safflower oil will do that too. They didn't have safflower oil. <laughs> Similarly, the Jewish people, even if you pour them amongst the idolaters, pour them amongst the non-Jews, they're not going to mix in. Now, What's interesting to ask is, are the rabbis saying that they shouldn't mix them? Or that they physically will not? Or, or, or watch out if you do? Is this prescriptive or descriptive? Is it, is it you better not? Or is it no matter how much you try to assimilate a Jew into a non-Jewish culture, it's just not going to work? Brings a proof text, Shenemar, as it says, this is the second verse that I asked you to look at, the lo tichatein bam. You shall not marry with them. If I pause here, do you think the rabbis were giving that teaching prescriptively or descriptively? Is it warning the Israelites not to mix in because, by the way, like those two things don't mix? Or is it saying there's something unique This gets to be a little bit jingoistic? There's something unique about the Jewish experience. And no matter what happens, if you pour us into a foreign substance, we're going to retain a, a certain... Unique identity. What do you think, Alan? I think that prior to this point, it was more uh, descriptive. That is, Israel does not intermingle. But yet, the proof text that they take is really more prescriptive. Don't intermarry. It's yeah. viewed as the commandment. Yeah, so remember that when we look at the final text, we'll be the spot and that we'll read something in the grammar of the Lot Baum that hovers the line between a thou shalt not and it actually can't happen. So remember that. AJ, see your hand. 
Yeah, a couple of things. Number one, uh, the mic in front of you is not working. Uh, you're being picked up by the other mic. Yes. So when you speak to the room, yeah, it's not working at all. Um, but when you speak to the room, it's being picked up by the other mics. You are faint. Um, but the paper rustling next to that bike is being picked up wonderfully well. Um, regard, regarding the uh, the issue with the rabbis and are they being prescriptive or descriptive, um, in general, they're, if they're being descriptive, they're being wishful. It's indulging in wishful thinking because obviously Jews... Um, call it intermarrying, if you wish, um, without rabbinic blessing. I don't know. But um, obviously it happened quite a bit throughout history. Um, but in general, it's also true and descriptive that groups seek out like kind, uh, especially if they're for to promote similar behaviors to make things easier and more efficient. And if you've got a, if you are doing services, et cetera, or following certain holidays and following a certain calendar, it's just easier if you're together and you know each other already. And it's, there's a level of trust there. So great. And a little I, bit of both. Is this better, Mike? Is this microphone better? Yes, it okay. is much, much great. better. So I think you're right. It's a little bit of both. Let's let's just linger on this a second before we go to the last source. Jewish parents who want their children to marry inside the faith and rabbis who try to create a community where the next generation will be Jewish sometimes engage in a lot of tisk-tisking, right? You're only allowed to marry inside the faith. It's probably a good principle to have in a, in a system that you want to maintain somewhat insularly to have certain prohibitions to keep people out. But it's not really the most effective tool. The most effective tool, I believe, in ensuring that you have another generation of Jews is to raise a child so deeply immersed in what it means to be Jewish that he or she will feel properly inorganic when bringing someone in from a different culture, right? Who's not, you know, if someone wants to convert, that's a different story, but someone from a different culture with different norms, they, they should experience that oil and water, not better, not worse, right? This is not a suggestion of our um, identity or our blood or our genes as being superior, but being something worth preser preserving, something that has a certain internal coherence, right? If someone goes off to college, and here's the voice of their teacher or the rabbi, their parents saying, you shouldn't do this. They're going to probably go do it. But if someone goes off to college and realizes they're most at home amongst other people who are similar to them in that they're olive oil. And when they try to integrate into other, um, cult into other aspects of the culture, they feel a little bit of that oil and water separation. That's a good thing. On some level. Now, we are ex experiencing in the modern 20th, 21st century America, a level of assimilation and acceptance into the wider society, the rise of anti-Semitism since October 7th, notwithstanding, that our ancestors really couldn't have imagined, right? In the beginning of the Enlightenment, right, the, the Jews who were the Jewish leaders, the Jewish Enlightenment, who basically said, you know, be a Jew in your home and a Frenchman on the street, 
They they were fantasizing about an era in which a Jew could mix, a, Jew, a Jewish Frenchman could just mix in amongst the French and be French. And a Jewish German could mix in amongst the Germans and be German. And it happened on some level. And at some point it happened so much that the oil and the water mixed. And it was hard to make the argument, well, why should I separate it out again? If someone doesn't have a certain unique sense of their own identity, it sounds very old-fashioned and archaic to say, you should forcibly um, uh, remove the oil from the water when they don't even recognize the distinction between the oil and the water. Right? So it looks like it's a thou shalt not. Culturally and pedagogically, it's really a understand what is beautiful about just being amongst oil and no matter how much you put oil into another liquid and mix and mix and mix, you should be aware of the boundaries. Now look at the uh, fifth source. Um, Hasidic commentary of Rabbi Yehuda Altaleb of Ger, 19th, 20th century Poland. His worldview is not ours. And some of the ways in which Hasidic texts railed against uh, assimilated communities like ours is very painful to read. Some of it is right on. Some of it is aware of how an insular society is best poised to pass on its values to the next generation, right? And we're going to fight it in our minds because we are happily living, you know, fully um, connected to the wider secular world in which we live. And yet there's something to this that I think is worth raising up. Look what he says. Yisrael mechunan betchunat nefesh kazo. The Jewish people has a certain, mechunan is hard to translate here. They're talented. They are uniquely described, something like that. The verb lechanein can mean a lot of different things. With this tchunat nefesh, this, uh, I translate it as character trait. It's really the trait of the soul. The Jewish people have a certain uniqueness here. Tiv'am hukach. It is our nature that she'enam yecholim. We are not able to mix in with the other nations. Remember what anti-Semites have said about us throughout the uh, ages. Remember what Haman said about they're unique and they're spread out, right? And they don't mix in with us. Part of our reaction to that is saying, how dare you say that? The Sfat Emet is saying, yeah, on some level, the way we have created our society and our identity and our rituals is so that there's a certain impermeable membrane between us and others. If they recognize that, it's because we have engineered it on some level. We want to be somewhat unable to mix in with our nations. Even if you want to. I can imagine a Hasidic Rebbe you know, telling young children in the community who are aching to go off into the big cities, into Warsaw and Krakow and whatever, and mix, mix in amongst the Poles. And the Rebbe saying, no matter how much you cut your payas and dress like them and try to talk like them and be like them, you're not going to be like them. And we might say, look, look how good we are at being modern Angelinos, right? And the question is, what is the cost of that? What What is the way in which the Sfat Emet's excoriation of or, or description of the inability of the Jew to mix in with others was a certain recipe for protecting the Jewishness that is so much of a treasure to us. Kemo sheshemen zayat 
אינו יכול מטבעו ותכנתו להתערב בשאר משקאות. In that way, there's no better fruit to compare us to than an olive, because just like the, the oil of an olive, and as you said before, any oil, but that's the, that's the oil par excellence that they knew, it cannot, from its very nature, from its very description, mix in with other liquids. Lachain, therefore, this goes back to what you said, Alan, uh, prescriptive, descriptive. Katu Torah, it says in the Torah, lo titchatein bam. What binyan, what form is the verb lehitchatein in? Hitpael, which means reflexive. Once you get into reflexive, it's hard to say that it's in imperative. It's hard to tell, it's hard to render a, a thou shalt or thou shalt not in a reflexive form. We normally translate it as thou shalt not marry them, but he says, it doesn't say you may not marry them, it's you are not gonna be able to marry into them. It's, it's a subtle difference. Not you, sh- you, you may not, but you cannot on some level. There's no way in which you are going to be able to marry in with all of them and have it be smooth and okay. Ki ofiam v'tivam. Because just based on the nature, the quality of the Jewish people, enam yicholim lehit bolel. They are not able to assimilate. What's painfully ironic about the Sfat Emet saying that is, we've shown that we're actually very capable of assimilating. But maybe, maybe, and this is harsh, but I want to say it, Maybe the ones who are capable of assimilating are the ones who are less immersed in the fully uh, comprehensive way of living life as a Jew. Maybe if you come to Shabbos Mincha every week, right? And maybe if you study Torah a lot, and maybe if your ways and your, and your, and your brachot before you eat are so darn Jewy, you will be resistant to assimilating. And if you're resistant to assimilating, it's not that you're going to feel someone saying, how dare you go out with someone who's not Jewish? You're going to say to yourself, why, how could I possibly share my life with someone who doesn't share this with me, however good of a person they are, right? It's a different message. So the Sfat Emmet is not in some ways our, um, you know, our primary under a source of wisdom for how to live as a modern Jew, but he's saying something that I think is worth um, pondering in terms of uh, how much you cloak yourselves with the particulars of the Jewish people, assimilation will not be a danger. It won't even be a possibility because there'll be no way for you to mix in. Hazivug eno ole yafe. The match, and he's being punchy here because zivug here also means like the, the, the match between two people who want to marry each other. So it means the pairing off but it also means like the relationship, the marriage, will not work. Mm-hmm. On some level, that's all I want to say. <laughs> um, but I, I, I was brought uh, or, or attracted to this text because first of all, now when I read the opening lines of Parshat Tetzaveh and I, and I see the Israelites being asked to bring olive oil, which the later rabbis understood to be representing them, to be living on an entire level uh, altogether. I think it's a healthy challenge to the modern, traditional, American, retro, you know, retro, uh, involved and integrated, but resistant to assimilated 
Jewish experience. On some level, if you're connected with Beth Am in some meaningful way, you're already living a version of that life, right? You walk down the street, if you're not someone who wears a kippah all the time, for the most part, you're not that distinguishable from every Angelino in La Cienega. Other hand, the number of hours you spend in your week doing something like this, you are olive oiling yourself in a positive way, which means that the mixture in the society around you is just going to be harder to do. That's okay. That's what's going to make it so that 100 years from now, people are in this room, davening Shabbos Mincha, studying next week's Parsha, connected to the world around them, but even more connected to the Jewish experience in which they are are living. Um, may the next generation take that lesson very, very seriously. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.